0: All right, well, good morning, and thank you for listening to Theological Equipping Class. This semester, we are going over defending the faith, apologetics, learning how to defend uh, Christianity against uh, charges by skeptics, and learning how to attack the skeptics to some extent. Not attack physically, but in a loving, intellectual, Christian way. And so uh, today, we're going to be talking about God and the problem of evil. Let me pray for us, and then we will get into the topic. Almighty God, we thank you for your grace and ask that you would forgive us, and you would protect us, and you would guide us uh, as we uh, listen to this lesson, and as we seek to apply it, we confess that this is a difficult issue for all of us, to believe that you are good and all you do is good, as we often sing in corporate worship. Please help us remember that as we get into this, uh, this difficult topic, somewhat of an Achilles heel for Christianity, and so I pray that you'd be with us. We love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, today we're gonna be talking about God and the problem of evil. And this is a really big one. This is one of those things where not only do skeptics bring this against Christianity, but even we as Christians wrestle with this. Why is there evil in the world? Why evil to this extent? Why did God ordain for mankind to fall? Uh, Why not do things a different way? And so today we're gonna be dealing with God and the problem of evil. And uh, the fancy term for this, the $5 theology term is theodicy. Okay, it is theodicy. Now, that's not the book written by uh, Homer, right, along with the Iliad. That's uh, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y, theodicy. It comes from two Greek words. The word for God, theos, and the word for justice, dike. Okay, the word for justice in Greek is dike. So theodicy has to do with an attempt to vindicate divine goodness and providence in view of the existence of evil. Let me say that again. Theodicy, or the problem of uh, evil in the world, though there's a good God, is an attempt to vindicate divine goodness and providence in view of the existence of evil, okay? Now, there seems to be three facts that the Bible teaches that seem to be in tension on this issue. Let me give you those three facts. First of all, that God is all good. The Bible is clear that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He is good. He is, uh, he is not evil, So the fact that we have an all-good God, not a God that's 90% good, not a God that's 99% good, but we have a God that is 100% good. He is infinitely good, and so we have to realize that the Bible teaches that God is all-good. The second thing that's very clear is that God is all-powerful, okay? God can do whatever he wants. God can do everything that is not a logical contradiction, which itself is not something to be done. God can do anything. God is all-powerful, Those two things in and of themselves do not conflict with one another. If God is just all good and God is just all powerful, everything's fine. We have no theodicy, we have no problem. It's the third fact that seems to put these things in tension and it's that evil exists, okay? That there are bad things going on in the world and it's very, very clear. And so how do you fit these three things in tension? If God is all good and God is all powerful, why is there evil in the world? Is he not actually good? He actually wants some of the, uh, he's not actually good? He actually somehow is evil? That he says in his word he's all good, but really he's actually evil? Is it that God is not really all powerful? That God wants to stop all the evil in the world, but he's just not quite strong enough, right? He's pretty strong. I mean, it's like you, and then Hulk Hogan, and then a tank, and then a nuclear bomb, and then God's at the top. Yeah, he's strong, but he's not strong enough to stop evil. That's, that, that, that's one thing you could do is deny the, his power. Or what, what do you do with the fact that evil exists? If God is all good and God is all powerful, why is there evil in the world? David Hume, the uh, brilliant uh, atheistic philosopher who uh, I actually really like as a philosopher and as a thinker, although I can't agree with his conclusions as a Christian, he phrases the question this way. <clears throat> is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent, meaning all-powerful is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent, meaning evil. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? Okay. What Hume's trying to point out is, wait a second, is God not strong enough to stop evil? Well, then he's not all powerful. Is God really actually just himself doing evil? Well, then he's not good. If he can't stop evil, and he's gonna, why call him God? He's trying to show the tension here when it comes to this idea of theodicy. So really here's what we're trying to do just in summary before we get into this. How do we defend the fact that God is good, or the facts that God is good and God is powerful if he allows the Holocaust, child molestation, infanticide, wars, terrorism, cancer, rape, or anything else that's bad? This is, a, this is especially an important lesson now as we are in a season of going through a pandemic with the COVID-19 coronavirus thing going on. This is a, a very pertinent question. Why does God, how is God still good? How is God still powerful if there is evil in the world? Okay. So what I want to do is I want to give you some attempts to solve this tension that I don't think are great. And then I wanna give you some thoughts to think about when it comes to this tension that I think are more helpful, that I think are better. So let me first give you some solutions that I don't actually think are very good solutions, okay? So let me give you a few attempts to solve this tension of how God is all good, God is all powerful, and there is evil in the world. The first attempt, the first thing that you could do is simply deny that God is good. That's the case in some worldviews outside of Christianity. They have a God or gods that just aren't good. If you think back to like Greek mythology, their gods are like sleeping around and getting confused and being really stupid. They're just kind of exalted humans and have the same exalted human uh, vices. But one attempt to try to get rid of this tension is simply deny that God is good. Well, the problem with that, of course, is the Bible. 1 John 1.5, this is the message. We have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That's a reference to God's moral purity. That doesn't mean you like bow down in front of a candle because it makes light or something. That's not the idea. The idea in context is that God is good and there's no evil in him at all. Psalm one says this, "'Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever.'" Psalm 119.68, you are good and do good, teach me your statutes. Notice there that it says not only that God is good in his nature, in his essence, but he also does good. God's actions flow forth from who he is. Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. James 1.13 let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Not only is God good, not only is God not evil, but God cannot even be tempted with evil. God is impassable. God affects other things, but you don't affect God. God is always doing great, just within his Trinitarian-ness. He's doing fine, okay? So that's one solution to the problem, and it gets rid of the tension, but at what cost? At the cost of denying a lot of what the Bible will say. These are just some passages. There are certainly more passages than this that say that God is good. Another attempt to solve the tension of theodicy, how God can be all good, all powerful, and evil exist, is to simply deny that God is sovereign over evil, okay? You, you have to understand, even with, within a lot of Christians, there are a lot of Christians who think that everything that, bad, bad that happens is just something God doesn't really ordain, that he doesn't really want, he doesn't have a greater purpose for it or something like that and they just kind of attribute everything bad to the devil. So, so a lot of Christians think that when we say that God is sovereign, we mean he's just sovereign over good stuff. The problem with that again is the Bible. The Bible teaches very clearly that not only is God sovereign over everything, he's sovereign even over evil events. He is sovereign, he's still king even over evil events. Let me give you some passages. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. Notice that strong statement of monotheism. God says this, I kill and I make alive; I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Notice it's God who kills. It's God who wounds. That's what this text says. Isaiah 45, five through seven says this. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Again, notice a strong emphasis here on monotheism. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Listen to this next part. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Okay. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, our Bibles will translate the word "ra," which is the word for evil, as a calamity. But literally, it's just the normal generic Hebrew word for uh, for evil. Exodus four eleven. This is when, uh, you know, Moses is kind of scared to go talk to Pharaoh because he says, you know, I don't talk good or something like that with a strong kind of Alabama accent, I just imagine, uh, as a Jew thousands of years ago. And, uh, And basically, here's what God says in responding to him. Then the Lord said to him, this is Exodus 411, "'Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord?' I don't know what the prosperity gospel, the televangelists, the faith healers do with that that text. God just said, I'm the one who makes people deaf. I'm the one who makes people have disabilities. I'm the one who makes people blind. That's what I do. And God's using that as a way to encourage Moses to say, hey, I'm in control of whether or not you talk good. I know it's talk well, by the way. I just wanna keep saying that to emphasize my uh, Moses not talking good point. Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. This is Joseph, you know, the guy with the coat of many colors, and his brothers hate him because they're jealous, and they, you know, uh, all this bad stuff happens. He gets uh, sold off into slavery, and all these kind of things. And he says to them, "You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today." Okay, as they are today. Job 1.12 says this. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hands. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This is a text where it's talking about Job, and the devil has to get permission to hurt Job, okay? That's crazy to me. It's not as though the devil's not under God's control. To quote Martin Luther, the devil is God's devil. God has the devil on a leash, and when God says jump, the devil says how high, Okay, God and the devil are not equal. God is eternal creator, uh, eternal creator, and the devil's just a creation. He's just this angel. And so he has to get permission to even do his bad stuff. That's crazy. 1 Samuel sixteen fourteen says this. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him, meaning Saul. So notice that God is giving a demon to Saul, God gives demons to people? That is the case according to 1 Samuel 16. 1 Kings twenty two, twenty three. 23. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. This text just said that God gave lying spirits to these prophets, okay? Because God is intending to crush disobedient people. Again, the view that you have of God is not just that he's strong, it's that he is sovereign over good and he's sovereign over evil. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. So to keep me, this is Paul speaking, from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that Paul had here seen, a thorn was given me in the flesh. What is that thorn, Paul? A messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Notice God has given Paul some sort of demon to afflict him for Paul's good. Notice God's sovereignty over even what is evil. And then I don't have time to really get into another big point here, which I think is really interesting. There's this case in the Old Testament where David starts counting up his troops. Okay, he starts counting up his troops and it's seen as an evil act. We don't exactly know why. It's probably because he's putting his hope in his might in his glory and in his military instead of God. But in one account of the Bible, this account is told from, uh, it's more than one time. In one account, it says that God incited David to do it. On the other account, it says that Satan incited David to do it. Okay? If you compare 2 Samuel 24.1 with 1 Chronicles 21.1. The first says that the Lord incited David to number Israel, and the second, when recounting this incident, says that Satan incited David to number Israel. How can both be true? Well, the idea is probably that God is using the devil to incite uh, David to count Israel for God's greater purposes. So you can't simply just say, well, maybe the reason there's evil in the world is because God just has nothing to do with ordaining it or uh, controlling it or anything like that. So that solution doesn't work for the problem of evil as well. Third possible attempt to solve the tension, this issue with theodicy, is to simply deny that evil exists, okay? You could simply deny that evil exists. You could say, I know how I'm gonna solve the tension between knowing that God is good, God is powerful, and there's evil. Just deny that evil exists. The problem with that is that the Bible very clearly shows that there are evil acts, there are evil events, there are evil people, okay? So obviously that doesn't work from a Christian worldview, but here's what's crazy. That view doesn't really work even from a non-Christian worldview, Are you really willing to say that the Holocaust wasn't evil? Even if you don't believe in an objective standard of evil, even lost people, people who are not Christians would still say there are things in the world they don't like. Why are there so many things that we don't like? And don't merely just don't like them, but I mean, when you lose a child or something, that's not just I don't like it. You realize this crushes me to my core. It's very hard to deny that there is something bad in the world. Whether you want to call it evil or you just want to say there's a bunch of things going on that humans hate, we can all agree a bunch of things that humans hate at least is going on in the world. So that's one option that I don't think solves the problem of evil. Number four, how else can we solve this tension? Well, this is a very common one throughout church history. It's to blame evil on human, quote, free will. It's what's called the free will defense. To blame evil on human free will, okay? Here is the free will argument. This is, again, very popular in church history. So this is a uh, legitimate Christian position, although I think that there are problems with it, but I wanna give you what the argument is. Give Give it a fair shake first. The free will argument is this, that it was not logically possible for God to create a world where, one, humans had free choice, and two, where there was not the possibility of humans using that free choice in a bad way. Let me say that again, Okay. What this argument says is that if God, there's no way where God could have actually given humans free choice without the possibility that we might use that free choice in a bad way. God's only other option would have been to create these robots who don't make real decisions. And so if God is really going to give us free choice, it logically is gonna come with the condition that we might decide to use it in a bad way, okay? So so let me give you an example. Let's say that there is a homeless man who needs a pair of shoes and I give him a pair of shoes and he strangles himself to death with the laces. Did I do something wrong in giving that man shoes? No, I just gave him shoes. Yes, he can take this good gift that I gave him and use it in a bad way, which is exactly what he's done, but that wasn't anything wrong that I did. I just gave him a good gift. In fact, the shoes need laces so that they'll stay on. I can't take the laces out of the shoes or else they'll fall off his feet. If he then takes those laces and strangles himself, he kills himself because he's sad, depressed, whatever reason it might be. I'm not responsible for that. And so in the same way, if God gives humans the good gift of free choice and we use it to rebel against God and crash the world, that's not God's fault, okay? That's not God's fault. Now, I wanna be clear on something. I don't like this argument. I'm going to tell you why for, in a few uh, seconds. But it does give a reason for evil in the world that is logically consistent with God being all good and all powerful and therefore does solve the problem of evil. So here's what you need to know about the free will defense. I don't like it, and I'm going to show you some holes in it in a second, but it actually does provide an answer to the skeptic. When the atheist says, well, how can God be good and God be powerful and there be evil in the world? If you explain that God could not have made humans with free choice without the possibility of them choosing bad things, that does provide an answer to this question. So you need to know this is a way to keep Christianity from being defeated by the charge of evil. Here are the problems with the free will defense. First, there are Bible passages that seem to say that God is sovereign even over the wills of men. So again, I don't know exactly what you mean by free choice, without, uh, you know, do you mean something that's not under God's sovereignty? Because that doesn't exist. I think you have some sense of freedom. If you wanna know what that means, you gotta go back and listen to our lessons on providence and Calvinism and election and these kind of things. But I don't think you have what is called libertarian free will, the ability to choose against your nature. Another problem with this issue, with, uh, with this defense, is that some chaos in the universe seems like it didn't come as a result of human sin. Now listen to this. The Bible teaches that the reason that the, 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 that the ground bears thorns and thistles, that all creation groans, the reason that there's storms and hurricanes and cancer and all these kind of things is because when mankind rebelled against God, God cursed everything under mankind's dominion, which is the earth, okay? How then do you explain chaos going on on other planets? You realize that big dot on Jupiter that's red is just like one huge storm that's been going on for a really long time, Okay? One enormous storm. Or how come our moon is all uh, pockmarked up with uh, you know, being hit by meteors or asteroids or I don't, I don't really know what the difference of those are. Just some sort of space rocks, let's call them that. Space rocks smash into the moon. Every record we have in human history that describes the moon from people's vantage point, it always has marks. It's been being hit by rocks for a long time. How do you explain all that kind of chaos and these kind of things going on on other planets? Things that weren't under mankind's dominion. If Why is that the case? Why would mankind's decision to rebel against God affect that kind of stuff? Another problem with the free will defense, God could have used people he knew would freely choose not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So if you just say, okay, Zach, I, agree, I think that God had to make humans and God isn't allowed to, to mess with their free will. Okay, fair. Why can't God then pick better decision makers? Why not pick Adam and Eve, who he knows are gonna mess it all up? Why not pick... I don't know, Barbara and John, and then all of a sudden they don't mess it up and they decide to be obedient. At least we would all agree, whether you're a Calvinist or not, an Arminian or not, whatever type of Christian you are, you would at least agree that God knows the future and yet God didn't choose people that he would have known freely would have obeyed. To push it back further, God could have not created the devil if he knew that the devil would fall and tempt man, right? So that doesn't solve the problem. If you just say, okay, well, Zach, God had to give mankind free will which meant that they had to be able to choose the possibility of evil. Okay, great. How about then not create the devil? So that way he's not there tricking and seducing and tempting Adam and Eve. That doesn't get God off the hook with the free will defense. This position says that God is unable to do something he wants to do, which is remove evil or overcome someone's will. I have a problem with any theological position that says God doesn't get his way, and that's what this position says. God ultimately did not want mankind to fall, but tough. Human's wills have to overcome the desires of God. Another problem with this defense. Christians in heaven, listen to this, this is important. Christians in heaven and angels won't be able to sin for all eternity and yet they apparently have some type of free will. So if you say God had to create mankind with this ability to choose evil, that seems silly because in eternity we won't be able to choose evil yet we still have some sort of freedom. We're not just robots or automatons or whatever the word is, right? And then most importantly, I think this one's huge. God doesn't have even the ability to do evil. Would you say he's not free because of that? Is it really, is the ability to choose evil actually a freedom? I would say that that's a type of slavery. It's not a type of freedom. It's actually a bad thing. God doesn't have the ability to do what's evil, but he's the most free being in the universe. So there are a few problems with the free will defense. The fifth one. I know this is a lot, this is heady, but this is important because this is the, I mean, I think this is probably the primary charge brought against Christianity. This is the big one. And so you really need to be equipped on this issue. We're trying to figure out how God can be good, God can be powerful and evil still exists. Here's a fifth possible solution that has holes in it. To say that God had to allow evil so that we could really see what goodness is. When you're creating a tapestry, You can't just have, you know, yellow on white or something like that. You're not going to be able to see it very well. You need blues and blacks and dark reds and these kind of things so that you're able to see the bright colors pop, to see those colors pop through and, and shine and look beautiful. Or to say it another way, if I take a lighter and I pull it out of my pocket and I light it in a bright room, that's not very impressive. You don't see the light very well. Go, go take your lighter. Sometimes if you use a lighter, even in the sunshine, you can't even see the fire at all. But if you turn out the lights completely and you black out the windows and it's completely dark, well, now that light shines even brighter. So what some people will say is that the reason there's evil in the world is so that we can actually see how good God is. Without the evil, we wouldn't see how good God is. He wouldn't be most glorified here are the problems I have with that. Now, I, I hate this one. I hear people use this all the time. A lot of well-meaning pastors, a lot of well-meaning Reformed pastors use this. Let me give you some severe problems with this defense. First, God's decisions for his glory are based on what he wants, not on what humans recognize as glorious. God is not saying, forget what I want for my glory. How will humans most see how kind I am? Oh, by letting them get plunge themselves into sin. That's not how God makes decisions, that's backwards. God takes himself into account first and then takes into account humans, not the other way around. Next, one can see that God is good without evil. Remember, when God creates everything and declares it to be very good, Adam, Eve, and the angels all knew God's goodness before the fall. This view actually says that things are better after the fall, which I think is ridiculous. I think things are better before the fall. And so here it's, you'd have to realize if you're saying, well, you need evil so humans can see how good God is, well, what do you do with the angels that already knew how good God is, the ones that didn't fall? Or what do you do with Adam and Eve in the garden before they ate of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil? Are you saying they didn't actually know that God was great? Are we really willing to say that God allows all the rape and murder just so we can see something we already know? Let me say this as strongly as I can. Would you abuse and beat your child and then give them a toy so they appreciate the toy more? That's really what this defense is saying, okay? That's really what this defense is saying. There's a great, uh, there's a great scene from a, uh, a show I like uh, called Arrested Development. And uh, some of it I can recommend as a pastor, some of it I cannot. Uh, but uh, there's a great scene where this kid Buster is going down a slide and his brother punches him in the stomach. And he says, now think about how much fun you'll have the next time you go down the slide and nobody punches you. And he says, thank you, brother, like that, okay? That's kind of what this defense says, is that you, uh, to, to really know something that the Bible would already tell us, uh, that you have to see it in light of all this evil and darkness. And lastly, please hear this. This answer makes it sound like God needs evil to be glorious. That's what this, that's what this thing is saying, that God, in a sense, needs evil either to be glorious or for us to see him as glorious. There was no other way that God could have let us see that he's glorious, despite the fact that he's God. He could have just literally put that thought into our mind. It makes God, in a sense, dependent upon evil. And so I have a problem with that. Lastly, of these bad reasons for uh, why there is evil in the world, trying to solve this tension. This is not a popular one for most of you, but it is popular in broader uh, religious circles, and so I wanna go ahead and mention it. There was a uh, very famous uh, philosophy of religion guy named John Hick, okay? John Hick, he's a British guy, very famous uh, uh, pluralist, very famous for thinking that, you know, there are different ways to God outside of Christianity, et cetera. And what he would say, his solution to the theodicy, to the problem of evil is to say, that God created the world good but imperfect so that humans could grow in moral virtue. So his view is that God had to create the world in some sense imperfect so that we could learn moral virtue as we grow, as we have to overcome things, as we have to love one another, as we have to show tolerance, whatever it might be. It actually makes us better people. The problem with this, I mean, there's a lot of these, is one, it makes God's creation imperfect, Right? God creates everything. Not only does He say it's good, but at the end He says it's very good. The idea is that it doesn't seem to be imperfect, it seems to be good. In this scheme, God fails. Many people do not get better through a difficult life. Some people, when they go through difficulty, grow in virtue. Other people, when they go through difficulty, throw in the towel and they just start living like the devil. They start doing whatever they want. So it makes God a failure if God's goal is to really grow humans morally. Couldn't God have just created people better without them having to suffer? Right, when we say that God can do anything, we don't mean that he can sin. We don't mean that he can do a logical impossibility. Those aren't things to be done. Go listen to our lecture on absolute truth. What we mean is that God can do anything he wants to do. God can do anything that can be done. And so surely God could have created humans with this virtue without having to suffer. There's no logical contradiction in that, so God could have done it. And lastly, it's not biblical. Mankind is seen as morally better in the garden of Eden than after just to be clear. So this is not a biblical view. This is not really a popular view, but you need to know about it just for completeness sake. So those are six possible solutions to the problem of evil that I don't think are great, okay? Some of them work like the free will defense, but at what cost? And so I like some of them. I I think some of them are good attempts. They're smart attempts, but other ones I don't like. I think that they lead us down some really bad ways of thinking. So what I wanna do now is I wanna give you what I'm gonna call good attempts to explain God and evil. Some things to think about when it comes to the problem of evil. And I've got about seven of these to think about. So let me just, everybody take a break. This is very heady. Everybody take a breath. Even if you're listening, they're in your home. Just relax. We're all having fun learning about evil during a pandemic. And here is what you need to, uh, to understand. Let me give you some attempts to explain how God can be all good, God can be all powerful, and yet there still be evil In the world. A few things just to think about, okay? First, you need to know this without God, there is no evil at all. You cannot allow the atheist to say, I don't believe in God because there's evil in the world. Evil is dependent upon the concept of God, okay? As soon as you say, I don't believe in God because there's evil in the world, you can't say there's evil in the world. All you can say is that there's preference. There are things in the world that you don't like. Evil assumes that there's a standard of good. And things that fall short of that standard of good is what evil is. So you cannot ever hold both of those. You can, either, you can never say, I don't believe in God because there's evil in the world. You can say, there are things I don't like in the world. There are preferences that I have that aren't being met in the world and therefore I don't like God. Or you can say, God does exist and then now you're not an atheist anymore, okay? You now can say there's evil in the world. God does exist and I don't know what to do with it because there's evil, but you can no longer be an atheist, Second thing you need to know, without God, there is no good either. There is no good either. When the atheist says it's good to be tolerant, it's good to allow, you know, people to marry someone of their same gender, it's good to promote human flourishing, it's good to pursue whatever you want, whatever. Without God, there's no good either. You have to understand Good and evil are words that have no meaning if there is not a standard of good and evil. There has to be this meta standard. There has to be this unmovable point from which you can judge all other points. If that doesn't exist, your words are meaningless when you say good and evil. You have to change the meaning. You have to say something like culture likes it or I like it. And then we're only talking about preferences, Boethius has a great quote. Who's Boethius? Boethius is a uh, early church leader, theologian, philosopher. His work, The Consolation on Philosophy, is the most read book in the Middle Ages after the Bible, okay? So he is a major, major thinker, and he has a great quote. Here's what he says. We cannot raise the question, how can there be evil if God exists, without raising the second, how can there be good if he exists not? Let me say that again. Boethius, we cannot raise the question, how can there be evil if God exists? Without raising the second, how can there be good if he exists not? Okay? Again, you have to assume God's existence. We, we talked about this uh, a little bit when we talked about presuppositions and presuppositionalism. Cornelius Van Til's quote that the only proof for the existence of God is without God, you couldn't prove anything. And so this, uh, this is kind of the same idea. You have to have an objective standard of good to even be able to talk about evil or to critique God or whatever, to say it as simply as I can, you have to assume God's existence to start critiquing him, okay? You have to assume his existence and a perfect moral standard before you start trying to throw him under the bus for this broken world. Number three, evil is not based merely upon the action itself. It is based on the end goal. Let me say that again. That's huge for understanding why is there evil in the world? Evil is not based merely on the action itself, it is based on the end goal. You need to understand that God is using all things for the good of his people and he's using all things for his own glory, okay? Let me me give you a few examples. Is it good or bad when somebody uses a knife and cuts someone? It depends on the purpose for which they're doing it. If they're a surgeon using a scalpel to cut somebody to save their life, that's good. If there's somebody who's a criminal and they're stabbing or cutting somebody to steal their wallet, it's bad. Notice that the cut, you can't just say cutting somebody is good or bad. The context really determines whether or not it's good or bad. What if I ask you this question, is pushing somebody good or bad? Well, again, it depends on the purpose. There's a push. It depends on why you're pushing them. Are you pushing them because you're in a fight and you're not protecting yourself, you're just some bully in the schoolyard pushing some kid against the slide or something like that? Or are you you pushing somebody out of the way of oncoming traffic? You're pushing somebody out of the way of a train. You see, there's a push in both senses, but you have to ask the question, why is there the pushing? Here's what you need to understand. If God is big enough to create the universe he's big enough to have a purpose for why he uses evil, whether you as a fallible human being can understand it or not, okay? If God has a purpose for what we call evil that is ultimately good, then it is not inconsistent to say that he is all good, all powerful, and that evil exists to serve this good end. Now, this is not saying that God himself can personally do evil for a good purpose. It is saying that he can use human and demonic evil to do good, okay? God is not evil, and God does not directly do evil. The Bible's very clear on these things. But God can ordain evil that he will use for an ultimately good purpose without himself being evil. Here's what D.A. Carson says. He's got a great quote here. I'm I'm gonna read this, and then I'm gonna explain it. To put it bluntly, God stands behind evil in such a way that not even evil takes place outside the bounds of his sovereignty, yet the evil is not morally chargeable to him. It is always chargeable to secondary agents, to secondary causes. On the other hand, God stands behind good in such a way that it, is not, not, that it not only takes place within the bounds of his sovereignty, but it is always chargeable to him and only derivatively to secondary agents. Okay, that sounds complicated. What does that mean? Here's what it means. God is good, so goodness flows directly from God, okay? Okay? When we do a good act, we do it secondarily. Any good in your life is only from the spirit, okay? Your ability to do good only comes from God. So God does good directly, and we only do it secondarily. God is sovereign over evil, but he stands behind it in a different way. It doesn't flow forth from his nature. In fact, God is always using secondary agents, right? Fallen angels, humans, whatever. And so you need to understand that though God is equally sovereign over good and evil, one flows forth from his nature, and is only done by us secondarily, whereas evil flows from us directly, and God is orchestrating. God is the one who's in the heavens ordaining whatever he pleases. So God stands behind good and evil, but he doesn't stand behind them in the same way, okay? He doesn't stand behind them in the same way. I think that is a really helpful explanation to God and the problem of evil, that if God has a purpose for it, and he's using it for an ultimately good end, and he himself is not evil, it seems to provide some type of a solution. There's still some mystery there, but it provides some type of a solution to this issue we're dealing with. Another thing you need to know when it comes to attempts to explain God and evil. Number four, evil is not a thing that exists. Rather, it is a lack of substance, what is called a Privation. Now, let me explain this because this is, this is heady, but I think it's really helpful. St. Augustine talks about this a lot. I think it's something you need to understand. Evil is not something that God created. It's not like a clump of stuff. It's not like Adam's in the garden and he's like, oh, a tree, that's beautiful. Oh, a mountain, that's beautiful. Oh, the stars, that's beautiful. What did I just trip over? Oh, I tripped over a clump of evil, okay? Evil's not a substance, it's not a thing, it's not a stuff. Evil is merely the lack of good. It's merely a privation. It's merely the absence of good, okay? So a few examples. Uh, Coldness is not really a thing, right? It's the absence of heat. Darkness is not really a thing, right? It's the absence of light. You wouldn't say, hand me a bag of darkness, unless you're some sort of wizard playing Dungeons and Dragons or something that I don't do, but Carl and other people on staff do, right? Darkness is the absence of light. Or maybe as a better example, evil is kind of like a hole in a shirt where the shirt should be. Notice that hole is not a thing. It's absence of shirt. If I just had a box that just had holes in it and no part of the shirt, there would be nothing in that box. A hole in a shirt is a privation. It's a lack of shirt. It's a a place where there should be shirt and there is not, okay? Or maybe a shadow is a good example of a privation. A shadow is just a place where there's an absence of light. Yes, you can tell that it, it, it's, it's something you can talk about, just like you can talk about a hole, but it doesn't actually exist as its own substance or something like that. You need to understand that evil is not this thing that God made. Evil is what we call it when people turn away from the good. So you have God. Evil's not a stuff, it's not a substance. When you turn away from that God, we now call that act evil, okay? So evil's a lack. It's a privation. It's this opposite. It's not a thing like a mountain or laughter or something good that God made. St. Bonaventure says this, sin is not any kind of essence, but a defect and corruption. Because the, creature, because the creature, in this case talking about humans, may thus do something which is not from God, according to God or because of God. This is sin, which is the corruption of mode, species, and order. Because sin is a defect, it cannot be said to have an efficient cause. Rather, it has a deficient cause, namely the defection of the created will. By the way, an efficient cause is something that directly acts upon it to make it do something. So here's what Bonaventure is saying. He's saying sin is not this thing that God made. God made things good, and when we turn away from it, when our wills choose not God, when they choose less than God, that's what we mean by sin. That's what we mean by evil. Evil is not a substance, it is a lack of substance. It is a lack of good. Evil is dependent upon good, not the other way around. Good is the standard, and evil is a lack of that. It's not like you have two standards of, you know, over here is something called good, and over here is this other substance called evil. So I think that's something to keep in mind with God and the problem of evil. God didn't create evil as, you know, that would make him a bad creator. Rather, he creates everything good and when mankind rebels against that goodness, that's what we call evil. You, you understand that, that God is not bad just because he gives humans the options of sinning. I, I hear, I've, I've heard people ask this question a lot. They'll say, well, wait a second. Humans were given a lot of things by God and they decided to use them poorly, okay? God gave them mouths to eat. He didn't give them mouths to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, He gave them hands to pluck fruit. He did not give them hands so that they might pluck the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He gave them wills to follow God and instead they decided to rebel against God and listen to the serpent. Just because God gives you something good and then you use it in a bad way, God is not the problem there, okay? God is not morally reprehensible because you used a good thing, your mouth, which should have been used for eating good food, to sin against God in the garden, being Adam and Eve, okay? Number five. This one I think is huge. I actually think if you get this one, you won't uh, stress out about this issue anymore because this one is such an exaltation of God and such a humiliation of mankind. God has a reason for evil that he has not given us so we trust him even when we don't know the answers. This is huge, okay? The book of Job is all about this guy, Job, who's suffering when he's righteous, Had the book said, Job is a scoundrel, he's awful, and then he went through suffering, we would all say, yeah, that makes total sense. Karma, bad people should get bad things. But what's so difficult about the book of Job is that Job is righteous, the Bible says that. God believes that Job is righteous, okay? Uh, In the book, that's clear from that, uh, that book in the Bible. Job is righteous, and yet he goes through tremendous suffering. He loses his kids, he loses his house, he loses his health, he can't sleep, he has nightmares, he's having to scrape boils off his skin with pottery, I mean, he is just the worst as far as his situation, but morally, he's upright. And the whole time throughout the book of Job, he keeps asking God, why? Why is this happening? Why is this happening? I've been righteous. I want to take you to court, is what he says to God. He wants to call God to account because he thinks God has treated him unjustly. And his boneheaded friends, with friends like these who needs enemies, keep saying, well, the reason must be because you're not righteous, but he knows that he's righteous. And so Job is one of the best books because of the existential crisis of suffering. And guess what's crazy? Job never finds out why he's suffering throughout the entire book. Even when he gets his stuff back, even when he repents in dust and ashes, he never finds out why he went through the suffering. He's never told about the whole bet with the devil, whether or not Job would betray God, etc. He never knows. Because the point of Job is that you have to realize that God is beyond your critique. God wants you to trust him when you don't have an answer. When you have an answer, it's easy to trust God. You don't have to trust God. You can just trust the answer. If someone came up to you and said, let's say you're going through, uh, you have cancer, and you keep asking God, why did you give me cancer? And and God shows up and says, you know what? The reason I gave you cancer is to help you grow, and I'm gonna take it away in two years so you're not gonna die, and you're gonna be totally fine, and your story's gonna be used to help other people. Well, now you don't have to trust God. God's explained himself to you. you. You can trust the plan. You can trust yourself. You can lean on your own understanding despite the fact that the Bible tells you not to do that. No, you see, God doesn't want you to know why you're suffering a lot of the time. He wants you to know that God is good whether you know why or not. That's huge. Job is asking a why question and God gives him a who answer. Job, why am I suffering? Why am I suffering? Why am I suffering? Why am I suffering? God speaks to him and says, do you tell the stars where to go? Do you hang the earth on nothing like I do? Put on your man pants before you talk to me, is basically what he says. He's trying to say, you are not my equal. Just because we both can speak does not mean we are the same type of being. God is infinite God and creator. Job is a creature. God is beyond our critique. And so God wants Job to realize that infinite gap between creation and creator. I think this is maybe the biggest purpose for how we understand suffering today. If God told us why he did everything, that would actually be bad for us. It would teach us only to trust him when we understand what he's doing instead of just trusting him for who he is as God, okay? Number six, which I just uh, hinted at, that God is beyond human critique, okay? You don't get to put God in the dock. You don't get to put God under your thumb. He is the standard of what is good. As soon as you start to say, God, I think you should have done things this way. Why? Why? Well, because I have a standard of what I think is good and you're not meeting my standard. How does that work? What court do you get to take God to? What moral high ground do you get to stand on and try to critique God? You need God to even try to critique God. You need a standard of good to even tell him that you don't think he's done a good job at being good. God is beyond human critique. He starts as the standard. There's nothing that you can bring against him. He's the, stand, he's the one that is good. He's the one that has put in his word what is good and evil. There's no further appeal. There's no, he is the ultimate Supreme Court. There's no further appeal than that and he's a perfect judge. So God is beyond human critique. Lastly, number seven. The Bible always blames humans for our sin and it is Jesus who comes to destroy evil. Evil. You cannot say that God is responsible for evil evil without also saying he's responsible for getting rid of evil. Let me say that again, getting rid of evil. Not red, because I'm from Texas. Getting rid of evil in Christ. You cannot say God is responsible for evil without also saying he's responsible for getting rid of evil in Christ, okay? If I were to talk to somebody who was not a Christian and they found out that I was and they were to ask, if God is good, if God exists, why is there so much evil in the world? You know the simple answer I usually give them? I can go into all this philosophy. I can talk about how a Christian worldview is more consistent than an atheistic worldview. I can do all that. But here's how I simply answer that question practically. I say, the reason there's evil in the world is because mankind has rejected God. God is the source of all good and all life and all joy. And when you, in your sin, give God the finger, which is what sin is, it's treason, because God's a king, you get the opposite of those things, which is all the bad things we see in the world. Why is there evil in the world? Because mankind has rebelled against its creator. And when you walk away from the source of all good and all joy and all life, you get the opposite of those things. You don't get all joy and all good and all life. You get all the brokenness that is in the world. But here's the good news. Despite the fact that this is our fault, God has sent Christ to redeem us, to fix the brokenness. That's why he cast out demons. That's why he heals the sick. That's why he teaches true doctrine. That's why he serves the poor and helps people in need. He's reversing what we broke. He's reversing the effects of the fall. And so what I'm trying to do if I'm ministering to somebody who's not a Christian is I'm trying to get them to realize the thing, some of the things you're really passionate about, because you're still a human, you still bear the image of God, even though the, the, it's been distorted because of sin, There's still some sense in which you realize you have a creator that you should be obeying and that you have fallen short. What I'm trying to do if I'm ministering to somebody who's not a Christian is I'm trying to get them to realize some of the things you are passionate about, God is passionate about as well. You love helping the poor, God loves helping the poor. You want a world one day where people aren't dying, that's what God wants. You want people to be kind and loving towards one another, that's what God wants. You want a world where there's no more sickness and pain and disease? That's what God wants. But here is how God has accomplished it, in Christ. God is your problem only in the sense that you fall under his wrath as a sinner, but he is the solution to mankind. He is our highest hope, he is our highest joy. All the good things that you're actually wanting culminate in God. You are wanting everyone, everyone who's a human, we want there to not be all the brokenness in the world. We don't want there to be any more murder and rape and molestation. We don't want there to be any more famine. We don't want there to be any more disease. We don't want there to be any more food shortages. We don't wanna lose jobs. We, we want a life of joy and happiness and bliss. And God has already promised that to us. That's coming. If you're a Christian, that is already there for you. It's begun and one day it'll be complete and there'll be no more weeping, no more crying, no more pain. That is good news. I think that is a good way to pitch this question as you're talking about the problem of evil to those who may not be Christians. Let's pray and then we will be done. Almighty God, we confess that you are a being who is wholly other, that you are completely beyond us, that we cannot comprehend you. And yet you've given us your word so that we might have little grasps of who you are. We might have understandings by analogy of the greatness of who you are and what you've done. We pray that you would give us faith we confess that it is hard when we're in a time of evil to believe that you're good. So would you help us see situations the way you see them? Whether they're pandemics or their job loss or whatever, that ultimately you still love us. You're working things for our good and you won't tell us why because you want us to trust who you are. And you're ultimately, we're, we're not actually ultimately uh, at risk. You've saved us. The worst thing that could happen to us, us dying and go to hell is not a reality for us. We will die and then we'll only stay dead for a short time and we'll be resurrected and then there's eternal life. That's good news. I pray that you would encourage us. It's in Christ's name that I pray, amen.